Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hindell, and we have a theme, the, the uh, last podcast, two podcasts actually, um, and the theme this time is a play called The Exonerated and the Writers of That Play. Um, we've spoken to them before. They're back with us again today. Welcome, Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen. Thanks for having Hi, us. Thanks um, for having us. In addition to being a play, we were very lucky to have a, a, a cadre of wonderful actors, including Susan Sarandon, Delroy Lindo, Danny Glover, uh, uh, join us to make a, a filmed version of the play of The Exonerated. It's available on iTunes and other streaming platforms. Uh, uh, um, iTunes is the only one I'm aware of right now, but I'm sure it's available on other platforms as well. So that sort of that sort of captures. Like not the if not the live experience of theater certainly the the, the, the spirit the spirit of the play. Um, mm. Oh, that's yeah. great. That's good to know. Very yeah. good to know. All right. So um, last time we spoke, uh, we were kind of talking about uh, your backgrounds, what you came from, and your feelings about the justice system. But I I didn't get to ask you both. Um, what were your feelings about people who were in prison? Who were innocent. When when I spoke to Jim McCloskey a few months ago, uh, I found it so fascinating that when he began his journey, he was pretty convinced that there weren't too many people in prison who were innocent. So I wonder when you began your journey, what was your feeling? Well, I mean, you know, the my naivete is sort of my power <laughs> in a way, um, you know, that, that, you know, coming to these stories for the first time, um, you know, I think that experience was reflected in a lot of the audiences that were coming to see Exonerated. Exoneration was not really part of the national dialogue, uh, um, you know, uh, on a daily basis uh, because DNA evidence had just, just sort of come to the fore. Uh, that science was, was brand new. DNA exonerations were just starting to happen. At a certain point during the play, you know, uh, uh, the, the statistic uh, came up that, that, and I don't know if the statistic is accurate anymore or not, that one in seven death sentences are either um, become exonerations or are commuted. And, um, you know, uh, if you apply that one in seven number uh, to, to uh, across the justice system, you know, the number of people who are, uh, who are wrongfully convicted, you know, just in, in, in non-death Death row-related cases are in cases where there's 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 uh, there isn't a tragic loss of life. Uh, you know that one in seven number is, is is pretty huge considering what the prison population of the United States is. So well, and then if you extrapolate off of that, that exonerations, as we learned in our research, only happen in cases where something extraordinary happens in the appeals process. A crusading pro bono lawyer gets involved. A journalist. Somebody, yeah. A journalist. Somebody makes a documentary, right? It's not an automatic thing that like, oh, the system figures out that it made a mistake, right? Like the cases that where there is enough support to actually bring the evidence of the mistake to light or the wrongdoing to light are rare. So that one in seven number, it's probably a much higher number. And people, a lot of politicians and a lot of prosecutors build careers on convictions and build careers on big cases. And, and you know, they, they'll, they'll fight like hell to, to, you know, retain their, their, I guess, their reputations or whatever by, you know, in, insisting that down is up and up is down in, in, in light of uh, DNA evidence, other things. You know, uh, there's only been a couple of cases that I've heard of where a 
prosecutors have come forth and, and apologized for mm-hmm. um, really convicting the, the, the or convicting the wrong person. Well, and I think it's worth noting, too, that there are, in most cases, I mean, maybe this is starting to change in small ways, but they're not incentivized to, right? right? So it's a systemic problem. It's not just about prosecutors being bad guys or something. It's that actually there is no professional incentive to come forward and say, hey, I'm doing investigative work as I build this case and I think we're looking at the wrong person. Or we convicted this person and now there's new information that I have and I think we need to do something to change that. I mean, you have examples like in Philly right now, right, of really progressive DAs who are really, really important and hopefully changing that culture. But for a very, very long time, you come forward and say, hey, I think we got the wrong guy probably lose your job yeah mm-hmm. or down or you'd be ostracized i mean you know uh you know coming forward is 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 uh quite difficult when you're in when you're as deeply entrenched in the system as you are i, I have the good fortune right now to be um, as as part of my acting work in my day job uh to be uh, uh to play uh prosecuting attorney on uh the tv show on abc called for life which is also about wrongful Which conviction. Which is also about wrongful conviction. It's based on the real experiences of a gentleman named Isaac Wright Jr. who was wrongfully convicted and uh, spent nine years in prison before he got himself out and became an attorney. He's an incredible, his story is incredible and, and uh, a worthy of a television show in and of itself. But, you know, to um, be part of a show that really uh, 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 points out the inequities in the system. I'm, I'm particularly proud of that. I'm particularly proud to be a part of that show right now. Well, and um, I think you you play a prosecutor who's grappling with some of those questions himself, right? right? I exactly. Mean, it's, it's, but I mean, I did, you know, to go back to your question of what did we think about people who were in prison before we embarked on this process? I mean, I think I, I definitely had uh, a sort of intellectual understanding that there were a lot of people in prison who didn't belong there, Mm -hmm. Um, that there are a lot of wrongful convictions and particularly, I mean, with the drug war also like, right. That, that, that there is a huge, huge problem with the system of mass incarceration um, and wrongful conviction or overly punitive, harsh sentences for nonviolent crimes. Like all of that I was aware of what I wasn't aware of was the emotional experience of what it feels like to go through something like that, right? And so we're, we, what we do is somewhat journalistic, but we are not journalists, we are artists, right? And so what we're actually most interested in is what does it feel like to be a human being walking through that experience? And can we as writers bring that feeling to our audiences mm-hmm. so that they can understand more than sort of the intellectual understandings that we can get about systemic inequities and, you know, and these large, huge social problems, right, that can get so abstracted, that can get so intellectual, that can make us feel powerless, that can make us feel like we're drowning in these sort of systemic injustices. What do those look like when you bring them down to human scale? A personal, and how do people survive them? A personal story always gets beyond the math. You know, if you see this many people wrongfully convicted in this period of time and, and, and you know, this many African-Americans are wrongly convicted or this many African-Americans are death row compared to this many white people, like it, it, it the, the people's eyes glaze over when, when you talk about numbers. But when you get to a personal story of somebody who's who's you know who's uh, who you know for but for the grace of God could be you, 
um, that that uh, that that starts to bring the conversation to a whole different level. Um, I wasn't present for it because I was filming something at the time, but Jessica had kind of an incredible experience in Texas, seeing a production of the play down in Texas. We always do talkbacks after the play. Uh, we have traditionally done that anyway. I mean, hopefully we'll get back to doing theater sometime soon. But, um, you know, and, you know, for the talkbacks in New York, about half the audience would stay you know, but, you know, New York's a very liberal place. Somebody wrote that, you know, talking about the death penalty in New York is about, like, pushing on an open door, you know. <laughs> um, but it was amazing, you know, uh, Texas uh, at the time, you know, was the death penalty capital of, of the United States. And, and I was in Harris County, which was is the Harris death County. penalty capital of Texas. Right. And and it was interesting, like, after the production of the, of the play, um, uh, uh, Jessica noticed noted in the audience that that um, that everybody stayed. Mm. Um, the audience didn't file out. Like Texans were really civically engaged. And people were deeply engaged, and the political diversity and ideological diversity in the audience was really incredible. I mean, there were a lot of people who were there who do not come from the same background that I do, that don't think necessarily the same way that I do about these kinds of issues, but who were really deeply engaged on a human level and stayed to ask questions, right? And because their hearts had been opened. And I think that that's something that live theater in particular can do, but also just that human conversation can do, right? Like in this particularly in this moment, this year, where we're all so isolated from each other, except for through the internet. But in the age of the internet in general, where we're hashing out so much of this stuff with each other out online, without knowing each other or not being face-to-face, -face, I think that um, becomes a really distorting influence. There's something, to me, really sacred about being in a room with lots of people who think really differently. And open-heartedly having conversations about what's going on. Like, I think that that kind of conversation and dialogue is in and of itself transformative and can be healing. And we've we had the good fortune to sort of be able to continue those conversations. The play we did after Exonerated uh, was, uh, was more or less done. Uh, was a play called Aftermath. We went to Jordan to interview Iraqi refugees during the war. Um, uh, we wanted to talk to civilian refugees about their experiences um, uh, there. Uh, we uh, did another uh, 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 documentary piece uh, that recently that was running in New York City uh, called uh, Coal Country in conjunction with the um, wonderful three-time Grammy-winning singer-songwriter Steve Earle, uh, where we went down to uh, West Virginia and interviewed uh, families uh, of and survivors of a coal mine explosion that took the lives of 29 men um, uh, down there, uh, an explosion I believe, which I believe was avoidable. Um, and uh, we wanted to talk about the men and the loss of those men and what happened to them and, and the impact that it had on the families. We wanted to talk about greed. We wanted to talk about, um, you know, uh, uh, fossil fuels and our relationship to that. And um, and then we did it with a play with music. Uh, so that was that was. Uh, uh, but then this year, um, you know, uh, when New York City was hit with COVID in March, we were really traumatized by that. So uh, Jessica and I uh, decided to do another documentary play in conjunction with the Public Theater, uh, an online play uh, called The Line. And we uh, interviewed uh, first responders uh, in COVID. We interviewed uh, EMTs, doctors, nurses. 
you know, uh, uh, lab technicians, uh, med tech, medical technicians, people who do intubations, um, and we turned those into a documentary-style play about what it was like uh, and the uh, sort of beginnings of COVID in New York City uh, in that, that crucial period in, in um, March and April where we didn't know as much as we do now. Right. Uh, as uh, and it and it, you know it it um it was frightening, but um you know the act of making art, uh, for me personally on a very personal level, and I'm just talking about myself. I always feel less afraid uh, when I've finished one of these projects. Um, I feel less afraid of my fellow men and women than I than mm -hmm. I when when I'm going in uh, because. You know, what always shines through with each of these very difficult and tragic stories, we're not tra chasing tragedy here. In a way, we're chasing hope. And what always shines through is the, is the human spirit. And um, my, my, uh, my, my, for me, my continued awe at uh, how strong and powerful we can be um, um, when uh, confronted uh, with adversity. Um, you know, I just there's a there's a lot of people that it, that we've interviewed that I've come to admire and in 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 uh, throughout all these projects and uh, and uh, exonerated is certainly no exception. Mm. Well, that's great. I, I was going to certainly spend time asking you what you have been doing since the exonerated and you have filled in. But I, I would like to just go back to educate people about more of the little, uh, the nitty-gritty of actually how the exonerated came to be. Um, to jumpstart that project, you needed money. What, exa what exactly <laughs> did you need, and what expenses did you foresee, and where did that funding come from? Well, well, I'll be up, I'll be upfront with you. Like you know, at the time, being a struggling actor in New York, I, I had the good fortune to do some television. I did my fair share of Law and Order and stuff like that. But you know, after after ten years of working, I had about six hundred dollars in my bank account. You know, you don't. <laughs> You don't make a lot. So when we started out, I mean, I don't, I don't think we had hardly any resources. I mean, we were just we, trying to make we our We had rent. probably about $600 in the yeah. bank. Attending bar, Eric was working as an actor. We lived in a 400 square foot rent stabilized apartment in the East Village. We were a couple of broke artist kids mm -hmm. in New York. We had this idea. And after a couple of months of research, we brought it to Alan Bushman, who um, ran at the time a theater called The Culture Project, who we both knew from, you know, doing theater downtown. And at this point, it, this was like would have been like May of 2000. And George W. Bush was running for president. And back then, if you can imagine this, the big scandal, the big like dramatic scandal was how many executions had taken place under his watch of governor as governor of Texas. I think it was right? 147. It was a lot. And it was more mm. than had happened in the entire country since the reinstatement of the death penalty in the early 70s. So that was, you know, now our concept of what constitutes political scandal has <laughs> expanded significantly. But back then, that was a, it was a really big deal. And Alan said to us, you know what, you can have my theater for free for three nights this fall and some space to workshop something over the summer if you can have something up in time for the election in November. Here's $1,000, go. Oh. So he gave us, us $1,000, which we would not have been able to start without. But then he also gave us the greatest gift that anyone can give a writer, which was a deadline. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so we just started. We got in touch with the Center on Wrongful Convictions, who put us in touch with the exonerees. We cold called them. 
We pre-interviewed about 40 of them on the phone. We talked the Innocence and Project, then, too. And we started, it, along the way, we got, we also contacted the Innocence Project and got involved with them. And we traveled to meet about 20 of the 40 in person. Um, $1,000 was not enough to fund all of that travel. So we, you know, we ran out of money several times during that summer and we, you know, we scraped it together. We did a snail mail mailing to my parents' friends who sent us like $50 checks, you know, right. we got, and then at a really pivotal point, we were planning our trip to the South and, um, where we had a lot of really important interviews and we ran out of money completely and we we just kept going as if it was going to work out somehow and i you know this was there were many serendipities like this along the way i happened to talk to like an ex of mine who i would talk to like every couple of years and be like hey how you doing and he said i have this great new girlfriend she's really wonderful you would really like her actually and her dad does all kinds of stuff around activism and justice and runs a foundation that wants to start to fund theater. <laughs> and I said, well, that's an interesting coincidence because we just ran out of money and he we he we got in touch with him and he had, you know, he was mostly making grants, right, in a more formal way, but he had a little bit of discretionary money. And the amount that he could part with turned it was a few thousand dollars, turned out to be exactly the amount of money we needed to complete the work that summer. And so we were able to, you know, not cancel our plane tickets and and go. But what we would do is we, we weren't would... drawing a paycheck, by the way. This no, is just, oh my this God. was just no, no. this was just to this was just to like, you know, you know, have somebody be able to take care of our dog while we were gone. And, and pay for the travel. And pay for the, the, the plane ticket and the car rental. And when we know. say travel, we were not staying in hotels. We were flying to so the, the the first trip actually we just rented a car and we drove from New York. We zigzagged through the entire mid-Atlantic and Midwest to Minnesota and made like a sort of jagged, complicated loop and then back to New York. The second trip we flew to Atlanta and rented a car in Atlanta and drove throughout the entire South down to the very bottom of Florida, back up through almost every state in the South. Um, and then the third trip, we flew to Texas and rented a car in Texas and we slept in the car. Yeah. Like we would, we would drive 10 hours often off the nearest interstate, like to very rural areas. A lot of the time, parts of the country that we would never have seen otherwise. Um, do an interview for three or four hours, come out with our minds completely blown and our worldviews turned upside down, get in the car, drive for another seven or 10 hours, just in time to show up at the next person's house, mm -hmm. and talk to them and do it again. So those trips were very, very intense. And then we had, we came back and we had a couple of college students working with us. And then we also did some of it ourselves. We transcribed all of those interviews. Yeah. And then we didn't know how to write a play, like I said, but we did know how to be actors and how to work with actors. And so we had the space that Alan had given us at his theater during the day. And we called up all of our actor friends and we said, hey, would you just come in and read these transcripts out loud? And we each had the transcripts laid out in front of us. And we noticed very quickly that as we were hearing them, we were crossing out the same things, right. right? We were hearing the same things in the words about what was dramatic, what was theatrical. Right. And so we would go home, enter those edits into the computer, come back with like a condensed version the next day with a different group of actors. Right. Because it was like whoever of our friends could show up and hang out with us and read transcripts. And and we repeated that over and over and over again until eventually monologues started to emerge. And then we also worked with actors to 
line up the monologues in different orders and practice, you know, experiment with weaving them together and seeing what that did. And we found the structure of the play that way. Yeah, I, I, I remember specifically the work of a good friend of mine is no longer with us, a, a gentleman named Curtis McLaren. You know, Curtis and I had done a, a an independent movie together called Ripe many years before we played guys on a military base. And, and um, you know, and I just always thought he was just such a wonderful actor. He went on to be in some incredible things. Uh, Tracy Scott Wilson played at the Public Theater that he was phenomenal in. He played Martin Luther King in a, um, a movie. Uh, the name is, is escaping me right now. Um, but he, he really was a, a, a tremendous actor. And, and what he brought to, it's, it's not the role, it's the person uh, of David Keaton, uh, which is which is a, a case just rooted in in just racism, you know, just sheer racism. Um, the uh, sort of hopeful uh, kind of um, uh, um, uh, uh, cadence and uh, uh, soul that he brought into a David Keaton story is something that's indelible for me. It's going to stay with me forever. You know, I can still feel my friend when I when I think about uh, him playing that role. I mentioned David in my opening uh, when I did the beginning podcast uh, to introduce this whole theme. Uh, we are once again uh, just about out of time. Um, I think what I'd like you to do for next time is maybe um, delve into a couple of cases that you remember very, very clearly um, and maybe be very specific about those cases. Uh, so that people can really understand um, exactly the the story behind the case. And some of these stories are just, um, they're heart-wrenching, as, as we all know. So um, I, I do thank you for taking us uh, on your journey. Uh, I so very much enjoyed uh, reading your book and learning so much that I, I did not know. So I, I certainly recommend uh, living Justice, I, I did earlier, and I'd like to do it again. So I hope you'll come back uh, next time for our final conversation about the exonerated. I hope our listening audience joins us to wrap everything up. And thank you for being with us today, um, Jessica and Aaron, uh, Eric. And uh, we will see you next time on Pursuing Justice. Thanks for having us. 